Well, good morning, church family. I love you guys. Uh, last Sunday, I was worshiping with another congregation, and um, it was a reminder to me that uh, that God's people uh, exist all over the world in a variety of congregations, and the Lord is doing good things in a lot of places. And in its own way, it was also a reminder to me how much I love you guys, and I miss you when I'm not with you even just for one Sunday morning. Uh, today, uh, last Sunday rather, while I was gone, uh, we wrapped up our sermon series in the book of Ephesians, which we began right after Easter. And so since that time, every Sunday, we've been making our way through the book of Ephesians and listening to what God has to say to us in that book. Uh, and before Easter, we were in the book of Matthew, and we just paused our sermon series there. And today, we are returning to the book of Matthew and I want to pause on this for a second and ask an important question. Why are we going back to the book of Matthew? The question is worth asking for a minute because um, some of you were not worshiping together with us the last time we were in the book of Matthew, or some of you might be guests uh, this summer or this fall. And so it's worth pausing for one second and to say, why, uh, why the book of Matthew? And I can answer that question for you in just about one word. Why Matthew? Because Jesus. That's why. I mean, I don't know what draws you to come to church on Sunday. I don't know what you're hoping for or expecting when you come to church on Sundays. But listen, my conviction is there is absolutely nothing better that I can give you, absolutely nothing better than I, that I can tell you about than Jesus. And Matthew is one of the four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament that tell us about the identity, the mission, the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we get back to the book of Matthew, we're going to be seeing Jesus week after week. And I'm looking forward to that. Now, because we're kind of dropping into Matthew chapter 16, it's kind of like sitting down and, you know, 60 minutes into a feature-length film or something like that. There's a little bit of context that uh, maybe we've forgotten over the last couple of months or that you aren't aware of. And so let me just give us a little bit of context here for a minute so that we understand what we're learning about Jesus and what chapter 16 is telling us in the context of the rest of the book. First, what is the book of Matthew as a whole all about? We can get a clue about that just by considering the very first words of the book of Matthew and the very last words of the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew begins, the New Testament, as it's arranged in our Bibles, begins with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you know much at all about the Hebrew Bible, about the scriptures that, that Jesus knew as the scriptures in his day, because the New Testament had not yet been written, if you know much at all about the Old Testament, you know that these two names, David and Abraham, are about as significant as any names could be to associate the identity of Jesus with. The book of Matthew begins by linking Jesus in as a son of David. 
great King David is remembered in the Old Testament as the greatest of Israel's kings. And more specifically, the Old Testament tells us of how the Lord God, our maker, made a covenant together with David. He made covenant promises to David that one of David's sons would reign on the throne in the kingdom of God not just for a couple of decades, not just for a lifetime, but forever. Into the ages. And Matthew has the audacity in verse 1 to tell us that Jesus is linked in with that legacy. He's telling us from the outset, Jesus is God's forever king that we have been looking for and longing for. More deeply than that, he links Jesus in with Father Abraham. The one from generations before even great King David. And God also made covenant promises to Abraham. Specifically promises that through Through his lineage, through the lineage of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so right from verse 1, we've got this hint, this whisper, this hope that Jesus is God's forever king who has come to bring God's blessing to all the nations of the earth. Fast forward to the very last words of the book of Matthew as we try to understand what this whole book is about. The very last words of the book of Matthew after Jesus has lived a righteous life and resisted temptation and taught the ways of the kingdom of God and represented the kingdom of God in word and in deed and been arrested, tried, crucified, buried in the grave, And who has risen in victory over the grave. The very last words of Jesus in the book of Matthew go like this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So what is the book of Matthew all about? Even if we don't take a lot of time to pay attention to the announcement of the angel. That his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, that he has come to save his people from their sins. Even if we don't spend a lot of time looking story by story through Matthew's gospel, we already have a sense just by looking at the very first and last words of the book of Matthew that this book is telling us about God's king, God's redeeming king who has all Authority for all people, all families, all ethnicities, all nations. 
That's what the book of Matthew is all about. And every incident in between the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham, and all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples among all nations. Every chapter in between is contributing to our understanding of who this redeeming king is and what he's come to accomplish. Now, we're dropping into the middle of chapter 16 specifically, and there's a couple of things that we kind of need to recognize in order to understand what's going on specifically here in chapter 16. Back in chapter 14, Jesus did a feeding miracle. A miracle of food in order to feed the hungry. In Matthew chapter 14, if we're reading our way through the gospel of Matthew, we read how Jesus fed 5,000 people through a miraculous provision. And then in chapter 15, we read another food miracle in which Jesus feeds a hungry crowd. This one in Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 32 tells about how Jesus fed 4,000 people through his miraculous provision. Why two food miracles so closely together? In this case, as Matt Vent helped us see when he was preaching on this passage a couple of months ago, in this case, the geography is very significant. The feeding of the 5,000 took place on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, a region in which most of the population was ethnically Jewish, in which most of the population worshipped the Lord as he is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. The second miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, took place after Jesus had traveled to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, a region that was populated not primarily by Jewish people, but a region that was populated primarily that people that Jewish people would call the Gentiles, people from other ethnic groups, people from other nations. And so what's going on in Matthew chapter 14 and 15 with these two food miracles is Jesus is demonstrating that he has come first for the Jew, yes. But he has come as a redeeming king with all authority for all peoples, also for the Gentiles. And this is the backdrop against which our story stands as Jesus and his disciples get back in the boat on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in Matthew chapter 15, verse 39, and they begin a journey back to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And as they are part way through their journey, as they're part way from the east side of the sea to the west side of the sea, as they're somewhere in between Jesus, where Jesus had fed the Gentiles with his miraculous provision and where Jesus had fed the Jewish folks with his miraculous provision, Jesus meets in chapter 16, verse 1, which Addie read for us a minute ago, Jesus meets these two groups of people named as Pharisees and Sadducees. 
maybe just a little bit of context will help to understand these two groups. These are both schools of thought, groups of religious teachers among Jewish people in their day. And it's worth noting, we need to understand that the Pharisees and Sadducees were very different groups. They did not get along about almost anything. In fact, ancient historians recall that they were rather snobby toward one another. They were very different groups. They had different views of life after death. The Pharisees believed in a coming day in which the dead would be resurrected for judgment. The Sadducees did not believe in a judgment after death. They did not believe in an afterlife. They did not believe in a human spirit that would endure beyond death. These two groups had very different views of politics. The Pharisees, by and large, avoided any and all interaction as far as possible with Roman governing authorities, whereas the Sadducees had a lot of favor and worked closely with powerful and wealthy authorities in the Roman Empire. These two groups had different understandings of of what constitutes religious authority. The Pharisees held a lot of teachings beyond what Scripture teaches, and they leaned heavily on the traditional teachings of the Pharisees' elders. The Sadducees, on the other hand, rejected the teachings of the Pharisees' elders. No creed but the Bible, and only the bare minimum was the Sadducees' approach to religious teaching. You see, these were... Very different groups. In one sense, the Pharisees can be stereotyped as kind of religious zealots who have rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. So many reasons to judge and confront and correct other people. The Sadducees, on the other hand, can be stereotyped as being like pragmatic here and now teachers. They might say, sure, we believe in God. After all, we grew up saying our prayers. But let's just focus on living our best lives in this world. And let's not get caught up in unnecessary details about spiritual things. Needless to say, these two groups did not get along on almost anything except... Notice in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, something that would have caught the attention of Matthew's original readers right away. These different groups of religious teachers who were snobby toward one another, who didn't get along on almost anything, they are unified in this one issue. They are unified in coming together to test Jesus. To test Him is the word that Matthew 16.1 uses. It's a word that is often used in Exodus and in the book of Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy to describe how the wilderness generation of Israel in Moses' day tested the Lord. That wilderness generation in Moses' day had seen the Lord's redemptive power. They had seen the Lord defeat Pharaoh And they had seen the Lord set them free from slavery in Egypt. But then they tested the Lord through their grumbling hearts. Prone to wander away from the one who in love 
had powerfully set them free. In fact, Moses had said of that wilderness generation that they were a crooked and twisted generation. And now we read in Matthew 16, 1, that the Pharisee leaders and the Sadducee leaders are testing Jesus, just as the wilderness generation had tested Yahweh so many generations before. And Jesus says that these leaders are an evil and adulterous generation. See, I think Matthew wants us to see this episode as a part of a wider theme in the great story of redemption. A theme of people who had seen enough of God's redeeming power and yet who chose to turn away instead of trusting the Lord. Now the Pharisees and Sadducees in Jesus' day test Jesus specifically by requesting a sign from heaven. And Jesus replies essentially by saying, listen, guys, you are better at predicting the weather than you are at understanding your place in the story of redemption. And I think there's some humor in that because my friend Rick describes Apple weather as cartoon weather, and you understand why he would call it that. It's only accurate so often, but in a generation before satellites and, uh, and weather imaging, all people could do is say, I don't know, the color of the sky makes it look like it's going to rain today. Not a very reliable way to understand the weather, but Jesus is basically saying, you're better at predicting the weather than you are at seeing where you stand in redemptive history. Like the wilderness generation, so many generations before who saw the Lord's redeeming power and then tested the Lord, these religious leaders have seen more than enough evidence. But here they are demanding another sign from heaven. The Pharisees and the Sadducees alike representatives from their group were there on the day when Jesus was baptized and the heavens were opened and the voice thundered forth saying, this is my beloved son. Representatives of their groups had seen his healing power demonstrating the Lord's heart. Representatives from Sadducees and Pharisees had heard his powerful teaching that reflected the Lord's own truth. They have heard the reports of his feeding of 5,000 people or 4,000 people by miraculous means. And now they show up as if what they need is just a little bit more evidence. And they demand a sign. But at this point in the story, their problem is not that they lack evidence. Their problem is that their hearts are so closed that they would refuse to believe in Jesus even if someone were to be raised from the dead. It's an important picture of the human heart, isn't it? Maybe you've heard of a phenomenon called confirmation bias. 
It's a term that was popularized by a British psychologist named Peter Wasson in the 1960s. The idea of confirmation bias is that as humans, we tend to interpret information in a way that confirms our preferred beliefs, no matter how compelling that evidence may be. It appears that when Jesus speaks with the Sadducees and Pharisees, he has an advanced understanding of confirmation bias. He realizes that there is something in the human heart that no matter how much evidence we are given, our hearts can still remain closed and hardened toward the Lord. Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees puts an important issue in front of us, perhaps our core problem in our relationship with the Lord is rooted somewhere deeper than just needing more evidence. In the light of the hardness of heart that Jesus sees in the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus says in verse 4, no sign will be given to this generation But notice these words, except the sign of Jonah. Important question, what is the sign of Jonah? Jonah has a book of the Bible named after him. He's one of the twelve prophets. Some people think of Jonah, and they think of Jonah as a prophet who was rescued from the jaws of death. The raging sea the great fish, and so forth. Others think of Jonah, and they think of him as the one who saw a miraculous repentance among Gentiles. Many in the city of Nineveh, shockingly, surprisingly, miraculously, who had been living their own lives, uninterested in the Lord or His plans for them, Many in the city of Nineveh, upon hearing the Lord's message through the prophet Jonah, many of these Gentiles turned in repentance. They humbled themselves before the Lord. So what is the sign of Jonah? Is it about resurrection? Or is it about repentance? I think the answer is that this is a both and rather than an either or. We don't need to chop up the life of Jonah just as we don't need to chop up the life of Jesus. In fact, this issue came up earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. And in that place, Jesus explains for us that when He talks about the sign of Jonah, He has in mind both resurrection and repentance. He says it like this, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what is the sign of Jonah? 
It is a demonstration of redeeming power in resurrection and a demonstration of redeeming love in a widespread repentance of many Gentiles. Both resurrection and widespread repentance are tied together in the sign of Jonah. And we recognize that the risen Lord Jesus Christ went down into the darkness for us and for our salvation. He was crucified and buried. And that He was brought back from the jaws of death. The stone is rolled away and the grave is empty. And as a result... Countless millions around the world have repented of sin and been reconciled with our Maker through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus Christ, who loves us and gave Himself for us, He is the one greater than Jonah. He was rescued out from the jaws of death. And through Him, and through His call for repentance, countless millions have found reconciliation with God by faith in Him. Going back to Matthew 16.4, fair enough, the Pharisees and Sadducees had not yet seen the resurrection of Jesus. Historically speaking, Jesus had not yet died and risen in victory, but they would soon see it. And Matthew's readers knew in his day, and we know in ours, Jesus is the one greater than Jonah. In his day, these leaders had already been shown sign after sign after sign after sign. And here they come demanding another sign from heaven. What's the real issue in this first episode here in Matthew chapter 16? The real issue is no longer an issue of needing more evidence. It's an issue of needing to respond in humble repentance to the one who is greater than Jonah. But this brings us to kind of a second episode in verses 5 through 12 in Matthew chapter 16. Now Jesus continues the journey with his disciples and they get some distance into the journey and they realize we left the cooler behind. Have you ever had that experience uh, on a field trip with the kids? Oops, we did not bring the snacks. We forgot dinner. We forgot our daily breads. You can almost hear the worried murmuring begin among Jesus' disciples. But Jesus says something to them that at first is kind of enigmatic. They're over here arguing with one another, you know, like, Simon, I can't believe you forgot the breads. Thaddeus, that was your responsibility, right? They're arguing with each other. And Jesus says, I've got something to say. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And it's clear in verse 7 that his disciples are totally confused by this. Um, Maybe there are some guilty consciences going on here. They just can't hear Jesus' meaning because they feel so guilty about not bringing enough bread to feed Jesus or, or one another, right? 
But knowing whatever is actually going on in their conversation with one another, Jesus interrupts their train of thought again in verse 8. And he says, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Again, with the help of some maps of the ancient world and some people who are a little more familiar with the culture and history and time and place in which Jesus lived, we realize that Jesus has just sailed with his disciples right past the place where he fed the 4,000. And he sailed right past the place where 5,000 or more were fed. And now... The disciples, having just seen the spot where he provided for thousands and seen another spot where he provided for thousands, he says to his disciples, do you not remember? These are words that the disciples of Jesus, like you and me, still need to hear today. See, like those early disciples traveling with Jesus, we may find ourselves feeling like we've run out of what we need. You may feel like you've run out of what you need. And of course, we need to realize that Jesus is not heartless toward our needs. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray to our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. He's not heartless toward our needs. But sometimes we need to hear again, These words that Jesus spoke to his disciples. Do you not remember? Do you not remember how I have provided for you in the past? Every provision of the Lord in the past gives us greater reason to trust him in the present. Even when it looks like we've blown it and totally forgotten the things we need and totally run out. This is something that we need to hear from Jesus still today. Brothers and sisters, church, family, do you not remember his provision for you in the past? And yet Jesus is driving at something still more important than that. Something he says even more emphatically. Look with me again at the culmination of this passage in Matthew chapter 16, verse 11. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? I'm not complaining that I'm hungry. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then... Aha! Then they understood, verse 12, that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Leaven is something that we may be more or less familiar with in our culture today. It's a word picture that Jesus uses here. Leaven is what makes bread rise, usually some kind of yeast or something like that. In the ancient world, it was a little bit of fermented dough, like sourdough today, that was kept from the previous day's baking. 
Leaven is sometimes used as a negative metaphor, as it is here, and it's sometimes used as a positive metaphor, like in Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, 33. But the key idea of the word picture of leaven is that only a little tiny bit of leaven will easily permeate the whole loaf. Only a little leaven kneaded in will spread and influence and grow throughout everything else. Now, I love the products of good baking. Can I get an amen? But I don't do a lot of baking myself. So this week I wanted to ask a local expert about how leaven works. And so I asked Macy Murlach, uh, a local sourdough bread expert and also one of the leaders of our Redeemer kids here. I asked Macy how leaven works. And she told me that when she feeds her starter... With even, she can take even a single gram of established leaven and then adding just a little bit of water and flour to it, it can make the entire mixture rise and double in size within four to six hours. A little leaven, even just a gram, can quickly double the size, can quickly grow, can quickly spread. And this is the word picture that Jesus uses for a warning about watching out for the potential spreading effect of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Telling his disciples, we need to be warned that even a little of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees can quickly spread. But that brings us to the big question... What is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we need to avoid today? And I want to suggest to you three ways that we might answer that question. Paying attention to how other Christians answer this question. I want to suggest to you three ways that we can answer that question. Three ways that we need to be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees today. First of all, still today, we need to beware of the leaven of religious addition or subtraction. Instead of trying to explain that to you myself, let me call on a preacher from about 150 years ago in England, the Bishop J.C. Ryle, who will make the case for us. He says... 150 years ago, something that's still true today. Let us remember that we live in a world where Pharisaism and Sadduceeism are constantly striving for mastery in the church of Christ. Some want to add to the gospel and some want to take away from it. Some would stifle it by heaping on additions, saying more than what Scripture says, And some would bleed it to death by subtraction from its truths, saying less than what Scripture says. Both parties, Bishop Ryle reminds us, agree only in one respect. Both would kill and destroy the life of Christianity if they succeeded in having their own way. Against both errors, let us watch and pray and stand on guard. Let us not add to the gospel to please the modern Pharisee by adding more and more and more rules and regulations and commands upon others. But 
Let us not subtract from the gospel also to please the modern Sadducee, saying less and less and less, drifting further and further away from what Jesus himself actually taught us. Let our principle be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, nothing added to it, and nothing taken away. I think Bishop Ryle is right. Still today, we need to beware of the leaven of religious addition or subtraction. We need to stay close to Jesus and his authentic teaching. But that leads to a second way that we need to beware today. We need to beware the leaven of religious addition and subtraction. We also need to beware the leaven of religious tribalism. Um, tribalism refers to this tendency that we have as people to find our crew and then to exalt our tribe, to exalt our crew over other groups. And there's a kind of religious tribalism that existed among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, constantly seeking to war with other people who studied the Scriptures, constantly contending and striving for where my way of reading the Bible is the way of reading the Bible. There's a kind of tribalism like that. But there's an even deeper kind of tribalism that is connected with the context of this passage It's the kind of tribalism that wanted to believe among Pharisees and Sadducees alike that God's plan was mostly about people in their ethnic group. But listen to what John Beck says, an author who teaches at Jerusalem University College. He says, while there were those who wished to limit the kingdom of heaven to just one side of the lake, Jesus was intent on removing that boundary line. The geography of forgiveness extended to every shoreline. I love that way of saying that. This is a lesson we still need to engage because all of us are prone to think of the church as most naturally composed of the kind of people we see in the mirror every morning. This becomes a subtle but ever so harmful, this becomes subtle but ever so harmful, replaying the yeast that will devastate the growth of the kingdom of heaven. In response, Jesus puts us back in the boat with him and turns our eyes to the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. He urges us to note the location of those two miracles and to count the baskets. And when we do, we see that forgiveness extends to both sides of the lake, to Jews and to Gentiles, to those like us and to those who are very different. We see that the two feeding miracles are not just about food, but also about the geography of forgiveness. I think he says that well. 
As Jesus urges us and warns us to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, certainly he is warning us to watch out for religious additions or religious subtractions, demanding and demanding and demanding of others, or drifting and drifting and drifting away from the teaching of Jesus. He also warns us against an attitude of superiority toward other groups. An attitude of religious tribalism, which also comes as part of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Just a little bit of adding to Jesus' message or subtracting will have devastating effects, even in our congregation. Just a little bit of promoting my group over others will have devastating effects even in our congregation. But there's still a third way that we need to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees today. We also need to beware the leaven of seeking something more than Jesus. See, when Jesus warns us to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, what is it in the immediate context that united the Pharisees and the Sadducees? It was their insistence that they needed something more than the sign of Jonah. Something more than the authentic teaching of Jesus and something more than Jesus raised from the dead. They saw the true and historical Jesus, but they shrugged their shoulders, influenced by the presence of sinful rebellion against God, influenced by confirmation bias, perhaps we might say. They saw the historical Jesus. They saw his redemptive power displayed. They heard his teachings, and yet they said, we're still looking for something else. Even when they have the sign of Jonah, the authentic resurrection, and the powerful spreading of repentance among the Gentiles, they're still looking for something more from Jesus. What then does Jesus mean when he warns us to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees at its core? I think it's a warning to avoid seeking something other than Jesus. I was talking with Matt Mull about this passage earlier this week, and he summarized it very simply. He said the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is to forget to keep the main thing the main thing. Church family today, we must still watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because a little bit can have a massive influence. We've heard the call to follow the risen Lord Jesus. But will we ask for something somehow more compelling? Will we demand of Jesus something more convenient or comfortable than what he has actually called us to? Something that helps us score more points against other groups? Something that lines up better with our political party? Something that lines up better with our news feed? Something more popular, something more sensational, something more practical, 
something somehow more beautiful than King Jesus? As the old hymn says, which we sang together earlier, what more could he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Dear brothers and sisters, let's avoid the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Instead, let's find our fill in Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And as Matt said, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's keep our focus on the authentic Jesus, truly raised up from the jaws of death, and truly the author of a new way of being reconciled to God through repentance and faith in Him. A message which has been bearing fruit and continues to bear fruit today in every part of the world. Brothers and sisters, let's find our fill in Jesus Christ. And let's beware of even the smallest amount of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. At this time, I'd like